Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. The city of Louisville, Kentucky, yesterday passed a ban on so-called no-knock warrants, and Senator Rand Paul introduced a ban on the warrants nationwide in response to the police killing of Breonna Taylor. She was shot eight times when plain-clothed officers burst into her home after midnight using a no-knock warrant in a drug investigation where she was not a suspect. Taylor was a 26-year-old emergency medical technician who, as her mother said, wanted to save lives. The killing of Breonna Taylor weeks before the police killing of George Floyd is sparking anger and action. But it's also raising questions about why her death on March 13th and police violence against black women, queer and transgender people generally tend to receive so little attention. So joining me now is Andrea Ritchie. She is the author of Invisible No More, Police Violence Against Black Women and Women of Color. She's also a police misconduct attorney and a researcher in residence on race, gender, sexuality, and criminalization at the Barnard Center for Research on Women. Thanks for joining us on Forum. Thank you so much for having me. So some have attributed the lack of video footage for the slow response to Taylor's killing. The attorney for for Taylor's family has attributed it to focus on the pandemic. What do you think is the reason most people are only learning about it and evoking Taylor's name now? I think for several reasons, I agree that those are definitely some, although there is plenty of video available of police violence against black women, queer and trans people, um, you know, both in the current moment and in the past. And it, certainly there's plenty of video of police violence against black women protesters in Fort Lauderdale. There was a video of an officer pushing a black woman who was kneeling to the ground. There was a black woman in La Mesa, California, who was shot in the forehead by a rubber bullet. And um, last I checked was still in ICU. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are videos of young black girls being pepper sprayed in the face. I've seen and documented myself police violence against black women in the context of protests. So it's not a question that there's no video available of that. It is true that police violence against black women and girls does take place in the home and in private spaces um, significant with a significant number of amount of time and that often it's in one-on-one interactions that are not necessarily being filmed 
uh, publicly. And certainly Breonna Taylor is unfortunately not the first black woman to be killed in her home as a result of a no-knock warrant served in the context of the war on drugs. Tarika Wilson, Katherine Johnson, Alberta Spruill, and Ayanna Stanley Jones, a, a young woman or a girl, um, was also sleeping in her bed at home when police barged in and, and killed and her there. So yeah. um, there's definitely precedent to that, whether there's video or not, um, that has demanded national attention. So what I hear you saying, Andrea Ritchie, is that it, there's more. It's more than just the fact that there wasn't a video in this case, that there's something else going on that that makes the killing of, of black women not, say, for example, um, you know, have have celebrities offer to pay for funeral services or for for campaigns to evoke her name the way that they evoke black men. Um, what what do you think that is? I think it's a few things. I think it is that in our in the public mind and in the media framing of the story of police violence, the image that is projected as the quintessential story of police violence is the shooting or beating of a black man who is assumed to not be trans and is assumed to not be gay. And so even when we see video, even when we see it happening in front of our faces to a black woman, to a queer and trans person, it doesn't register in our minds as the same thing as what happened to George Floyd. And therefore, it doesn't register as something that's part of this long arc and narrative of state violence against black men that generates a particular response. I think it's also about, um, it also is outside the frame of what we generally understand as gender-based violence, which is say domestic violence or sexual assault against a white woman in her home or on a, a college campus. So it leaves black women, queer and trans people who experience police violence out of both of those conversations and narrative frames. And narrative frames are powerful in terms of how we think about these issues. Um, I remember seeing the movie Crash, uh, which came out, you know, around uh, policing and, and racial profiling and police violence. There yeah. is a scene in Crash where Tandy Newton is sexually assaulted by a police officer during a traffic mm -hmm. stop. That wasn't kind of the narrative that people took from that film. And the way it was framed in the film is that that was actually somehow still an attack on the black man whose company she was in and not on her own body and integrity as a black woman. So I, I think we have to look at how powerful those frames are and how they shape how we understand the issue. And the other thing that you touched on earlier is that we also have to look at where the violence against women can often occur. It sounds like you're saying in the home or away from public spaces, which leads me to wonder, I mean, have you found that gender makes violent encounters with police different in some way? That there Definitely are some certain I've, patterns. What yeah. Definitely. What I've seen is that there are, we, we experience police violence in the same ways that Black men do. So in public spaces, during stop and frisk, during um, encounters that escalate to use of force, uh, to deadly force. I can name Frankie Perkins as just one Black woman who was also choked to death by police officers in her case because they believe it, that she had swallowed drugs. So these things happen in the same way for Black women, for sure. Um, and they happen in unique forms and context. So one thing that's come to light in Breonna Taylor's case is that the officers who uh, killed her had prior sexual misconduct complaints. Definitely, when we start to look at Black women's experiences, we see the same thing and we see new things like sexual violence that we haven't sort of talked about as a form of police violence, even though it's the second most frequently reported form of police violence after use of force, but not the second most frequently talked about. So sexual violence is something that happens very much in private. There's often not 
a uh, cop watcher there with a camera filming it. It's very difficult for people who are experiencing it to document it. Um, some women have managed to keep condoms and DNA or clothing with DNA, but ultimately it's very difficult to document in the same kinds of public way and share the information kind of virally in the same kind of public way. Um, and it's also takes place disproportionately in the context of calls for help, calls for help regarding domestic violence, regarding sexual assault, regarding unmet mental health needs. And so in that case, you know, black women are need protection and instead the people who are responding are committing more physical and sexual violence against them and sometimes fatal violence. And again, those are contexts where there isn't a cop watcher watching when the DV call is answered or when someone goes into the station to report a sexual assault and the detective driving her home sexually assaults her on the way home. That's happened, but that's not something that we document in the same way. And the same with uh, our responses to mental health needs, which generate the fact that half the people who are killed by police are or are perceived to be in some kind of mental health crisis or disabled in some way um, at the time that they were killed. So those things, I think, shape what is visible literally and figuratively as police violence. We're talking with Andrea Ritchie, author of Invisible No More, Police Violence Against Black Women and Women of Color. And we're talking about Breonna Taylor and the visibility or lack thereof of black women victims of police violence. Andrea Ritchie is also a police misconduct attorney and a researcher in residence on race, gender, sexuality and criminalization at the Barnard Center for Research on Women. And I invite you to join the conversation with your questions for her about Breonna Taylor's case or how stories of police violence against black women, trans, queer people of color get treated in the media and in the public eye and even in the movement. Give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. You know, Andrea Ritchie, you mentioned documenting, and I have to say I was pretty stunned to see that this week they released uh, the police report uh, on Brianna Taylor's killing and that it's basically the incident report is almost entirely blank. It says that uh, her injuries were none. Uh, it checks the no box when it comes to whether or not there was forced entry. Can I get your reaction to this incident report? And as somebody who, who is an attorney on police misconduct issues, I mean, how common is this? Extremely. And I think that it reflects a, I mean, that is particularly shocking that, that a report about someone who literally was killed indicates no injuries whatsoever. I don't think I've ever seen that before. But I, what I think this reflects is, um, ties back to the larger theme of our conversation, is that there is a normalization of violence against Black women in this country that, and queer and trans people that dates back to slavery, such that it's just not recognized as violence. And I think that report is um, indicative, is sort of an extreme example of that. A, there is a black woman who is no longer with us, who has been murdered by police. And the official account of it is that nothing happened. And that has been true in this country since the transatlantic slave trade, since slavery and to the present. And the same is true of sexual violence against black women. It, it was required in order to maintain the institution of chattel slavery. And so sexual violence against black women is often completely disregarded in police reports um, or not even registered. So that's what that report reflects to me is this longer, bigger pattern of history, which contributes to 
the fact that we don't recognize or see police or other forms of violence against Black women. What I do want us to consider, though, is also how we move beyond visibility. I think visibility is critical and essential, and I think we keep being stuck at that point. And we need to get off the starting line and start to get to what does what we know and learn through Black women's experiences of policing tell us about what needs to change. So yes, it definitely tells us that no-knock warrants need to end and that they can't be transferred uh, or renamed quick-knock warrants, which are still permitted by you the mean legislation. Basically that you could announce yourself, but only wait a sh very short period of time before then forcing your way in. Exactly. And call. all of us can imagine sleeping in our beds, hearing a knock, hearing, Whoa! and 15 seconds later, someone being in our home and still being confused, right? So I think um, it doesn't solve the problem, but it does start to address the cause. But I think we just step even further back and say, what sent those officers to that door with that warrant? That's the war on drugs. And the war on drugs is definitely a prime location of killing of Black women and girls and also sexual violence against Black women and girls and so and queer and trans people. So we need to step further back and say, well, what does this teach us about what we need to change? And then the fact that I, as I mentioned, the, the um, harm to Black women and queer and trans people often happens in the context of responses to calls for help tells us that we need to think of different ways of addressing sexual violence, domestic violence, homophobic, transphobic violence, and unmet mental health needs that will actually prevent those things from happening and respond to them in a way that in that moment will produce more safety, not more danger, and potentially more violence. So then Black women and girls' experiences of policing actually lead us much more quickly to the demand that the movement is making right now and that people in Louisville are making, which is to defund the police because and to invest in things that would actually keep Breonna Taylor safe and would actually keep survivors of domestic violence, sexual assault, people with unmet mental health needs, people like Tony McDade, who had experienced tremendous homophobic and transphobic violence before he was killed by police, um, like Kiwi Herring, who similarly is a trans woman who experienced homophobic and transphobic violence and then was killed by police. What would keep them safe? What would prevent them from coming into contact with the police in the first place? That's where we need to go. And if we look through the lens of women's experiences, we get there faster. I do want to, I, I want to talk about how we can integrate reforms. I would actually address these specific things that you're talking about, but, but I do want to back up just for a second to talk with you a little bit more about your point about no knock warrants and their relationship to the war on drugs. Could you talk a little bit about about sort of the history of how these were allowed? Because my understanding is that they're, they're very questionable in, in terms of whether or not they're legal anymore. Absolutely. And um, they come actually from a very militarized approach to law enforcement. So that's also ties to demands to demilitarize law enforcement and, and cut military grade weaponry from being transferred to local law enforcement. They come from this um, uh, trend in the 80s that started in LA and other places when the transfer of military equipment started to police departments to create SWAT teams, which are, um, I can't remember what SWAT stands for, but strategic something, tactical something, action something, right? It's, it's, it's literally a military term. And it's these highly militarized raids that were used in the context of the war on drugs. And yes, it involves a complete exception to the warrant requirement um, and the announcing yourself and serving a warrant and making sure you have the right address and all the things under the guise that there's an exigent circumstance. There's something happening in that home that means you have to go in without people knowing that there's a police officer there because someone might destroy evidence, someone might destroy drugs, someone might 
um, make it harder for you to prosecute them in the context of the war on drugs. And you can find video of SWAT raids on the internet that look like invasions, um, military invasions, because that is what they are. And there are so many people who have died um, or been harmed or killed in the context of those kinds of SWAT raids. Um, often disabled people can't move fast enough or move at all in response to them and can be, you know, die as a result or suffer tremendous injuries as a result. There are people sleeping, children sleeping, family members sleeping uh, in homes that are attacked by SWAT raids. And, and this is the outcome, right? What happened to Breonna Taylor. And I just want to be clear, the, what happened with Breonna Taylor is that the, the police made an association between her and someone they thought was involved in the drug trade. And part of the reason we didn't hear about Breonna Taylor earlier also is because they tried to dirty her name. They tried to say she was involved in the drug trade. And um, that is also very common in the context of how the war on drugs is waged is that, you know, women by any kind of association get pulled into criminal liability or to these kinds of policing tactics. So the SWAT raids and the no-knock warrants that facilitate them have this impact on, on Black women and children who are in a home that law enforcement is somehow identified as problematic, often in a way that's faulty. So that's the broader framework and how, for instance, ending no-knock warrants could actually be tied to a demand to demilitarize the police department, to stop the flow of military equipment, and to end the war on drugs. And that's what actually would effectively prevent what happened to Breonna Taylor. And so do you think that the efforts in Louisville, uh, the senator the senator's efforts, Rand Paul's efforts to try to ban them nationwide will be effective. I haven't read the fine print, but I don't know if they make exceptions. Uh, I think like that they—that's yes. what the last legislation I looked at allows for um, short knock warrants, and also, you know, there's always other exceptions that you can use to the warrant requirement. And so, I think that what's helpful about this legislation is it's starting the conversation. And or not starting, it's continuing and amplifying to a national level a conversation many of us have been having for years and making us think about, well, under what circumstances do we think it's okay for an armed agent of the state or a platoon of people, frankly, not platoon, maybe excessive, but, you know, a, a, a unit, an armed unit with sometimes, you know, battering rams and tanks and other things. Under what circumstances do we think it's okay for that kind of thing to happen and barge into someone's home while they're sleeping? potentially with their children, their small children present. When, when do we think that's appropriate? And I think that's the question that we need to be asking ourselves. And I think increasingly the answer is there's, there's nothing that makes it worth taking a life of Breonna Taylor um, that would allow such a thing. And so that's where I really want us to think about in terms of reforms is we think is what, what do we think is necessary? And in terms of dealing with drug use, drug sales, um, and the things that we're concerned about in terms of um, controlled substances, there are many other solutions on the table that don't have the same results. And it's time that we invested in those uh, to the degree that we have in militarized responses that are resulting in deaths and killings like Breonna Taylor's. And so let me, um, we'll have that conversation with you. I mean, what needs to be added to the calls for police reform that we're hearing right now to address the issues that, that Black women face, that address these broader systemic issues that are creating the systems that lead to deaths like uh, Breonna Taylor's. I mean, you've touched on some of them, but are there some specific things that you would like to see the movement really adopt and, and be more vocal about? I'm guided by people in the movement who are demanding uh, defunding of police. And I just mm. really wanna be clear that when people say that, they don't mean and leave 
no other responses available. P what people are saying is we need to invest in the things that we know will actually keep us safe. So if, if we are concerned about uh, drug sale and use, let's figure out how we offer people voluntary harm reduction-based treatment when they need it. Let's figure out how to structure um, markets so that they don't increase violence. And let's figure out, you know, how we want to respond when we think there's a problem. Do we want to offer services? Do we want to offer comprehensive health care? Do we want to offer alternate employment options? Do we want to offer alternate ways of, of being in community? Do we want to offer a different understanding of, of what harm looks like? There's many um, approaches that we could take, but that requires resources and time and an opportunity to experiment with and try those things. And there's so many um, drug treatment programs that are dramatically underfunded. Many drug treatment programs don't um, offer pregnant people the opportunity to enter or people with young children the opportunity to enter or you get one chance and it's abstinence only. And there's just so few resources to address what people term problematic drug use. And then we put so many resources into regulating drug use that's not problematic in ways that generate more violence instead of more safety. So. Let's find out what, and similarly, you know, when it comes to domestic violence, sexual assault, unmet mental health needs, there are proven strategies uh, to address unmet mental health needs before the point of crisis to prevent domestic violence and intervene in transformative and lasting ways. And those things are grossly under-resourced while we spend $100 billion a year on policing that is harming us and not solving the problems that we're asking it to solve. I think people in this moment are saying it's time to, there's, this is not the time for solutions of the past. This is the time for solutions of the future. They're going to lead us to a world of greater safety for everyone. And in which Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and Tony McDade would all be still alive today. We're talking about black women, victims of police violence, uh, victims of police violence who are queer and trans. We're talking about Brianna Taylor, and we're talking with you, our listeners. Andrea Ritchie is joining us. She is a researcher in residence on race, gender, sexuality, and criminalization at the Barnard Center for Research on Women and author of Invisible No More, Police Violence Against Black Women and Women of Color. This listener writes, what are your thoughts on the effectiveness of the Say Her Name campaign? Um, I had the privilege of co-authoring the report um, that came out in conjunction with the Say Her Name campaign with uh, Kimberly Crenshaw and the African American Policy Forum. And I think it was an essential intervention in a moment where, um, you know, Black Lives Matter was taking off and we wanted to make sure that, that the expressed intention and desire and politic set forth by the founders, three Black women, some of whom are survivors of police violence themselves, word naming, which is that this is a movement that's about all black lives. And this is a movement that's not going to hide or foreground or um, is not going to dismiss or not foreground the experiences of black women, queer and trans people. And so this was an intervention, said the Say Her Name report and the, the, the campaign around that was an intervention to offer a resource and framework to make sure that that happened. So I think it's been very successful, particularly because social media has made it possible for us to, sh to shift the frame, right? When I said that the media shapes the frame, I think we have then taken social media and said, we're not going to wait for the media to tell our stories. We're going to tell them ourselves. And we are going to um, make sure that they're heard using this hashtag. So I think it's been very effective. And as I said, I think we need to then turn to what does saying her name mean in terms of action, how we understand the issues and the solutions we pursue. And that's 
where I think we need to go now. And I do want to point listeners to a network of over 20 organizations who are currently working on ending police violence against black women and girls. Um, it's the inournamesnetwork.com. And there are some in the San Francisco Bay Area. Justice for Kayla Moore um, is an organization that sprung up in defense of uh, Kayla Moore, a black trans woman killed by Berkeley police in 2013, who is currently at this moment demanding that we come up with a different response to people in mental health crisis and unmet mental health needs that does not involve the police at all. And that's been part of their that family and that campaign's demands from the beginning is they wanted to change the conditions that led to Kayla's death. And they wanted to make sure that no death like that could happen again to someone who was in a mental health crisis or had unmet mental health needs. And that mm. that means taking the police out of the equation and making sure people who are trained and um, able to respond from a, a supportive standpoint um, are the ones who respond and that they're available 24 hours a day. Um, the Justice Teams Network and Anti-Police Terror Project who organized around the killing of Yvette Henderson in the Bay Area um, are also part of that network and they are similarly trying to move non-police responses to mental health crises and also to domestic violence and uh, sexual assault such that there's another way to respond that will actually produce safety and not more violence potentially through police response and prevent as opposed to respond. And there's many other across the country. I just wanted to highlight the ones in your listeners area so you, they, you can follow the work and see how people organizing around individual black women's deaths are moving to demands that are based on systemic change. Well, let me uh, bring a caller in, Robert in Oakland. Join us. Hi, Robert. Hi. Uh, first, I want to say uh, how impressed I am with this speaker and I uh, support virtually everything that she has said, and kudos to her and to KQED for having her. But I, I do have one issue I want to throw out there. Um, even though I support almost all of the things that speakers tend to be talking about when they use the term defund the police, I have a problem with the term, not the actions that people are calling for but the term because i think it lends itself to being um sort of stolen and co-opted by people who are opposed to the movement ah, uh, i see by, by republicans by by trump who mm -hmm. say you know defunding the police means eliminating police departments Robert it misses the point but it's a problem let me yeah let me ask a Andrea Ritchie, what she thinks about that? I definitely agree that the demand is being uh, co-opted and watered down and also uh, reframed in ways that are not reflective of what people are demanding on the ground. And that it's not just a budgetary exercise, right? We're not just saying in a moment of the greatest economic crisis of our generation, every public service is taking budget cuts and the police should take their fair share. And then as soon as we're in a different role, we can put the money back there. What, what, and so we're putting out a document at the Interrupting Criminalization Initiative where I work at Barnard uh, today or over the weekend to give some clarity around that, to say that we're not just about cutting funding, we're about cutting scope and power and uh, contact and reach and um, equipment of police departments so that we can take that $100 billion that we spend on policing that's killing so many of us and put it into the things our communities need. Because I think the other 
potential danger around defund is that the fund part gets lost, right? Mm -hmm. So we're saying defund police, fund the people, fund the things people need. Um, so I agree with you that we need to be sharp about what we're saying and clear um, and resist co-optation. Well, Robert, thanks so much for the point. Roger asked this in interesting question, and we just have a minute left, but Roger writes, isn't one of the key differences in the Breonna Taylor case that instead of being the result of bad intention, it is the result of an accident under permitted procedure? It's an interesting point because I do, you know, one of the biggest questions was, well, how did a judge even approve a no-knock warrant in this case? How did the DA even think this was a good idea? You know, I just, <laughs> it, it, I think it points to what you were saying largely, Andrea Ritchie, which is that it, it's it's part of a much bigger system of issues. Exactly. I think that whether it's intentional or unintentional is beside the point. Brianna Taylor is not here with us today and Brianna Taylor should be with us today. And we need to attack um, at the root whatever structural things led to that result because that result is unacceptable. Well, uh, Andrea Ritchie, I really appreciate talking with you today. Thanks so much for being on. Thanks so much for having me. Andrea Ritchie, author of Invisible No More, Police Violence Against Black Women and Women of Color. She's also a police misconduct attorney. Thank you to our listeners for their questions and comments. Stay with us for another hour of Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.